have any of you ever had mango soup with chunks of pork in it before? No? It's not awesome. I will tell you, I have had it. I was on a mission trip. I actually spoke about this mission trip a couple weeks back or a few weeks back. Um, um, it was in Central America, right there, right under the equator where it's nice and cool, right? Feels a lot like today, plus humidity. <laughs> and we were working on some houses that had been wiped out by Hurricane Mitch. And so we're putting up bricks and mortar. Some of you were here a few weeks ago. You remember me telling the story. Um, and it was grueling work. And it got to a place where most of the workforce was already sent on to the next house. And there was only four of us left, me and three other guys, right? And we're putting up bricks, and we're putting mortar, and we're digging, and we're making new concrete. And we are a weekend at this point. We're exhausted. Exhausted is an understatement. And whoever's job it was to make the food at base camp and walk the mile out to us and bring it to us failed. There was no food coming. We realized at 2 o'clock we could be waiting all day. There is no food coming, right? Um, so some lady, some village lady, I guess, um, knew about that, and she brought us some mango soup with chunks of pork in it, right? It wasn't cold, but it wasn't hot either, you know what I'm saying? Somewhere in between, and she handed it out, and I know all the rules in missions work. You're always supposed to be thankful. You're always supposed to eat it, or else they get their feelings hurt, and I get that. Um, I was hungry, so it wouldn't have mattered anyway. But So we all start leaning up against something to eat. Because, man, not only are we tired, we're gripey, we're sunburned, we're sweaty, we're stinky. Because it's nothing but a bunch of guys out there. We're actually bathing in the ocean. <laughs> you know, that's our, that's our shower. And we get, so after a week of that, you just start sticking to yourself, you know. So we're nasty. And we start eating the soup. And then pockets of little villagers, little boys, not, not teenagers, but not real young, started coming up with this big, these big eyes. They really wanted that soup. I guess to them it was a pretty big deal. And so they had these big eyes. They really wanted that soup. And I didn't really care. I was eating that soup. But there was one guy, about four guys down, and I could see the wheels cranking in his head. You know, I could just see it. He's thinking, I can't eat this soup with this kid looking at me. I'm going to give him my soup. And in my, in my mind, in my mind, I'm thinking, dude, don't give him your soup. Don't. Because if you do, then like lemmings, these two guys are going to do the same thing, and it's going to get to me, and I'm telling you right now, I'm not going to give up my soup. And so, sure enough, that's what happened. I could see the arm going out like this. He's reaching his soup out, and it stopped being in my mind, and it came out right, right out of my mouth. I'm like, hey, look, bro, don't do that. Don't give him your soup. And he had this horrified look on his face. A lot like yours right now. He had this horrified look on his face like, Are you kidding me? We flew all the way over from the United States to bless these people. And I'm just going to give them some soup. And you're going to... And he gave me the riot act. And I said, Listen, they got beans and rice and candy. We brought it all off the plane. I remember bringing it off the plane. They got plenty of food back at their huts. Anytime they're hungry, they can go right back on. They got more food than we do. It's my soup. My soup. He did it anyway. And sure enough, like dominoes, they're all giving their soup over. And it got to me. I wasn't going to do it. I wasn't going to be that guy, you know. So I said, I'm not giving my soup. I'm not doing it. This is my rightful soup. Justifiably, this is my allowance for all the hard work. I've been out here, and I flipped it, man. I mean, I just started losing it. I've been out here for a week. And I just started. And now it wasn't them just looking at me horrified. It was the little kids. They were looking at me like, oh, my gosh. Keep the soup, dude. You know? <laughs> And so, some of you are really astonished that I was like that, but you can get over it. Because the deal is, is we all have our version of mango soup with pork in it, don't we? 
I mean, we all have our version of that somewhere in our life. Where justifiably, we have something that is due us, a right, a freedom, an allowance, finances, time, whatever it is. And even though it's due us, and it's not excess, it's something that is rightfully ours, we will not forfeit it or vacate it. We won't do it. And we end up internally, spiritually, emotionally looking like what I just described to you physically, right? So open up your Bibles to Nehemiah 5, if you have them. If this is your first time here, or you've come like once or twice, we're traveling this summer. We're traveling through the whole book of Nehemiah. We're almost halfway through it right now, and we're going verse by verse. It's really a beautiful story, Um, and we find ourselves in a really cool place today. Obviously, up until now, just to recap you in under 60 seconds, Nehemiah has left Babylon to go to Jerusalem to help the, the dispersed and dislodged Jews build a wall. Right, which they did in 52 days, it ended up being. They did that so that it would be a glory to God, and it would be for the sake of the city, because all the other nations would look on and see the walls go up. Now, the walls going up was important because it defined what this nation was to be. They weren't going to be like the other nations. It was going to be a different nation, a nation of people that God would bless. And so by this part in the city, or in the story rather, Nehemiah had to raise the funds from a pagan king. He traveled there. He assessed the damage. He administrated the workforce. He's had um, opposition come from outside the walls. He's had opposition come from inside of the walls. And then we come to this story. In verse 14, this is Nehemiah speaking in first person. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, which is 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even the servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of the Lord. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. So remember, for my good, O God, all that I have done for this people. You know, as a people of God missions is our lifestyle. I mean, we're missionaries, right? We get that. We are a sent people that have been collected by a sent king. Just as we see in John 20, Jesus says, just as I have been sent, so I am sending you. That is our nature as children of God. That is our posture. That is what we employ our time with here while we're here. Yet the world, um, our flesh, They set up great opposition to the demands that come with being a missionary. Right? They do. They collide, basically. And we grimace inside. Because we don't like to vacate things. We don't like to forfeit things. We don't like jettisoning things that we feel like we're due. Whether it's time, money, or freedoms. 
You know, and that's just really, that's our factories, or our, our factory setting, our, our heart's default. When we come out of the womb as sinful mankind, we want to collect things. We want to get and we want to keep. We don't want to vacate. We don't want to empty ourselves. We don't want to sacrificially give. And this started in Eden, right? Adam got the first gift from God. And rather than employing this gift to the glory of God, he perverted it turned it inward, and made it draw glory to him and honor himself. Ever since then, the race of man have been practicing this. And we're very good at it. We're very good at keeping things and not emptying ourselves, vacating things. Um, You hear people say, if I had a million dollars, I'd give it away. How many of y'all heard somebody say that? It seems like I'm always bumping into that person. If I had a million bucks, I'd just give it away. Well, no, you wouldn't. Well, okay, well, I might pay off my student loans, you know. And I might pay off my car, but then I just give the rest away, you know, to make it look a little bit more noble. You might do that if you scratched off a lottery ticket, but what if you worked really hard for that million bucks? What if it was your due right? Would you be so fast to give it away? Think about it. Think about it. You work your tail off for a million bucks, or you just get it given to you. It makes a big difference. Nehemiah shows us in this part of the story what he did with what was due him. His justifiable wage, his rightful allowance, his finances, his time. You know, he gave up a justifiable paycheck. He was owed that money, right? Governors got paid. They got paid well, too. We're about to find out how much. But governors got paid. They got paid well because it was a hard job. It was difficult to do what they were doing. He wasn't the first one. Governors had come and governors had gone. Nehemiah came. And let's just look. One of the things, or maybe a few of the things that he did, he was hospitable to over 150 people. Get that. I mean, that's a big table, right? hundred Or little people, right? <laughs> However you want to call it. That's a lot, though. 150 people. That's a, that's a hospitality nightmare. I mean, we pull off a, a party every now and then as a church. Well, we'll, we'll get, you know, maybe 100 to ride at. I mean, it's a headache. It takes like a week or two just to plan that out. They did this every single day. 150. And these were people that were not the easiest people to probably sit down and eat with. Right? They were dislodged from community. They were tired. They were broken. They were hurting. They were bleeding, I'm sure. Emotionally, vocally bleeding, you know. And they're just now getting stabilized. As Kevin said last week, a lot of them were just getting their kids back for the first time. Who were sold into slavery. So, I mean, it's a mess. They're just now trying to find what stable family looks like, what stable nationhood looks like. Not the easiest crowd to sit down and eat with day in and day out. And these people were working on the wall all day long, right? But they still had to eat and pay KUB, right? So they're having to go out and get a second and a third job. But that's when Nehemiah says, hey, you know what? I got plenty of food. I got plenty of food coming. That's what I get. That's what I get for being a governor. Why doesn't everyone come over to my house and eat? That way you don't have to get a second and a third job. That's a little bit of what we're seeing happen. Now, he did not do this from guilt because he was eating and they were starving. He did this out of a sense of worship, gratitude, thanksgiving, and an understanding of what mission really was. He coupled what was due him and he combined it, or he coupled and combined it with God's mission. What was due him, his rightful funds, his rightful food, his rightful time, and he joined it with what God was doing right there in that city. I mean, think about it. He would have needed about 15 bucks a person, right? 
to feed someone. I mean, remember, this is good food, right? This isn't like what just people are eating on the street. This is good food. This is a king's food, a governor's food. And it might sound like a little bit more, still 15. Remember, there's wine there. <laughs> How many of you go out to eat, you get a beer, you get wine, and it just doubles the, the bill automatically? Just by getting like a martini and a beer, you just doubled your bill. So 15 bucks is not that big of an estimate, right? I'm just lowering it for math's sake. It could be more. But 15 by 150 every day is $2,250 per day. All right? This is his money. That's 67500 every month. All right? We're guesstimating, right? I'm not nailing it. We're guesstimating. But that makes $810,000 a year. This is money that was due him. Funds that were aimed at his account. He diverted. He did this for 12 years, it says. Very specifically, explicitly, he did this for 12 years. Comes out to $9.75 million. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money, right? And he didn't just write a check and hand it out the door and shut it again. He also vacated his privacy, didn't he? He had these people over. Sweaty, dinky, he's gripey, mad, upset, always complaining. He had them over. Invaded his space. You know, to me, that's probably harder than writing a check for $9.75 million. <laughs> Is every day having dinner, because I like my privacy. I don't know if you're like me or not, but I like my privacy when I want it. I like to be around people when I want to be around people, but I like my privacy when I want my privacy. He did this for 12 years. It's amazing to me. And what I also noticed in this, which you probably noticed too when you read it, is that even the servants followed suit. Remember, the former governors, they lorded, this is what it means, they lorded their freedoms over the people that they led. All that means is that they exercised their freedoms even when it cost the people. So they're starving, governor's eating. They're losing their lands, he's gobbling up more. That's what's happening right there. And what does it say? The servants did the same. But what about Nehemiah? They gave up their food allowances, right? And then you could find them working on the wall. That's what it says. We can get something really big out of this. Some of you, as we talked about earlier in this series, in this book, some of you are called to big leadership. Now listen, if you're a man in here, you're a leader no matter what. First of all, you need to have good dominion and leadership over your own body, over your own purity, eyes, heart, soul. But whenever you get married, now you're leading in a totally different realm. You start having kids, it just cranked up another notch. If you're a guy, you're called to lead. I'm sorry, that's just the way it is. Some of you ladies are called to lead. You've been put in positions, not where you're just with your kids and you're leading your kids, but actually around other people, men and women. You see that. Some of you men are going to lead businesses. Some of you are going to lead multiple families. Some of you are going to pastor churches. Some of you are leading in the living room right now in some of our missional communities. Lots of you are called to lead. Some of you are called to lead at a greater scope than others. But this is just a fact. So one thing we learn about leadership in this is whatever you do, those who follow are going to mimic and echo and mirror image you to a pretty big degree. That's just what we see. I've noticed this. I've, I've been in some form of leadership, at least in the church, for 15 years. And I've been in other forms of leadership beyond that, even earlier than that. And one thing I've noticed, and one thing that I've read in other books, but I didn't even have to read it to understand it because I got it as soon as I saw it with my own two eyes. Something that's very true for you. If you want people to be at a certain place as a leader, you've got to go further. You just do. You want people to show up 10 minutes early? You better be there 20 minutes early. You want your kids to learn how to pray? They better catch dad praying, right? You see what I'm saying? You have to go 
further than what you actually expect people to come up to. It's a very firm rule that you always find in good leadership. We, we see it here. They're going to image somebody. Who are the people that you're leading? Who are they going to look like? What is that going to look like? Are they going to look like, like you guys as a pastor? Am I going to see people come up? Some of the young men that I get a chance to be around a lot, are they going to look like rebellious, insistent babies? Or are they going to look like Jesus Christ? Right? And therefore, Nehemiah. Is that what we're going to see? You know, Paul had no problem saying, hey, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He had no problem. In fact, he said that three times. We usually only think he said it once. He said it once in the 11th chapter of Corinthians, once in the 4th chapter of Corinthians. He says it in Philippians as well. He says, be imitators of me. Imitate me. Why? Because he was imitating Christ. He had no problem saying that. So what we see here is a life of forfeiture to the glory of God and for the sake of the city. That's what we're seeing in the story of Nehemiah. So I want to look at this part. This is the only part I really want to chisel in. And why do we stink and hate and resist and bristle against vacating our rights? Forfeiting, emptying, sacrificing, being benevolent, giving. Why do we hate doing that so much? Why do we insist on eating our mango soup with pork chunks on it, right? Why do we do that? What I want to do with you right now as we look at the answer to that question, I want, it's a little bit of an exercise. It's just called unpacking the whys or, or unpacking the motives. Okay, I did this with a young man this week on a different issue and it found, to be very, uh, found it to be very helpful. I do this a lot. Whenever you find a place in your life where you're just stinking egg in and you're trying to get some growth in and you're having a hard time seeing any sanctification, this is always a very useful exercise. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to take you through it. The reason I like doing this, just as a preface, is because a lot of times, whenever we try to medicate a part of our life, we medicate the symptoms and not the root of the problem. Right? We'll take some thing that we don't like, that's an inconvenience to us, maybe a shame to us, and we'll really try to just work and, and, and think and just try to sanctify that thing, whatever that thing is, when the whole time it's just a fruit of something much, 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 much deeper. That deeper thing, that's what needs the remedy of the gospel right there. That's the gaping wound. That's what needs to be bandaged. And that's what we're going to do right now. So I'm just, I, I typed up a statement, one sentence, See if I'm, I didn't hit it. We're unwilling to abandon self for the sake of the mission, but we are willing to exercise our rights and freedoms to glorify ourself. After the end of every statement, just ask the question, why? Why? Why is that true? Well, because we're selfish and unbelieving, and we have no fear of God, no regard for His glory. Well, why? Why is that true? Because we see our rights as more prominent than God's glory and mission. Okay, but why? Why is that true? Because we're unsatisfied with God's glory and we're unsatisfied with God's mission. Okay, but why? All these questions, why? Because it costs us and it's not about us. Okay, but why do we think this? Because we don't understand or believe the gospel very well. You see, that's the real issue. I can't stand up here and do a good job as a pastor and tell you, hey, you need to be more sacrificial. You need to be more benevolent. You need to be more hospitable. Just work harder at it. Look, Nehemiah did a good job. You do a good job. That's not gospel application. We want to get to the bottom of why that's such a struggle for you and me. Me specifically. I struggle in this. Why is it a struggle for us? 
because we don't understand, grasp, and believe the gospel like it really is. You see, we're cruddy givers because we're cruddy recipients. The gospel is the story about us receiving something. We're passive in this story. We're passive. And when we're cruddy at giving, it's just an indicator that we don't do a good job of receiving. That's what it's about. We don't love because we've disconnected from being loved. We don't give because we don't understand what's been given. You know, there's a book I cannot put down. I've told everybody I know to read it. Um, it's called Transformed by the Power of the Gospel. And, the, and the, <clears throat> the author, Jerry Bridges, he says this. It's very appropriate for this, I felt. We must continually embrace the gospel every day of our lives. For he that is forgiven much, loves much. It is the level, or I'm sorry, it is the love of Christ for us that constrains us to live no longer for ourselves, but for Him. Right? It compels us. And that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14. He says the love of Christ compels us. It compels us. It pushes us. It controls us. There's a guy, really smart guy. His name is Ken Woost. I think that's how you say his name. Um, and he wrote a New Testament expanded translation, which all that means is, is he took the Greek words that are found in the New Testament and he really opened up some of those words, some of the key words, to kind of build more of a texture in what some of these terms and phrases really meant, right? Just to kind of help us as we study the Bible. He looked at this word compels or controls. For the love of Christ controls or compels us. And this is what he says. This is what he came up with. The love of Christ has for me, he presses on me from all sides, holding me to one end and prohibiting me from considering any other end, by wrapping itself around me in tenderness and giving me an impelling motive. An impelling motive. An impelling motive. I mean, I just want to dissect this just a little bit more for you. I want to put a little bit more skin and see if we can make it a little bit more practical. I want to use money for an example, okay? I know what some of you are thinking already. Are you going to talk about money again? I'm not. Listen, we don't even pass the plate, okay? So it's not like I talk about money all the time. Um, by the way, this has come up a few times. Why do we not pass the plate, all right? We have not passed the plate as a church. When I say that, for some of you, it means an offering plate going back and forth. We have not done that as a church because I wanted to be very careful at encoding obligation, right? A lot of you have grown up in churches where as soon as the plate comes past, you feel guilty inside, Right? Because you're not putting something in, or you're not putting enough in, or for whatever reason, there's a guilt that comes in. A little bit of a condemnation, right? A little bit of a, ugh, I'm not putting anything in, or I'm not putting as much in. Or I, we didn't want to deal with that at all. We want good givers. And for those of you who give sacrificially, joyfully, consistently, and faithfully, thank you so much. Because we are a poor church plant, we're not getting any richer, right? But... We came to declare war on things like that, on giving out of obligation, giving because you feel like a, just a donkey inside, you know, because you didn't give last week or whatever. We don't want anything because you're supposed to be joyful in it, right? I'm probably going to talk about that a little bit more. I don't want to rabbit trail it right now, but because this is not a sermon about money, okay? But that is where we find Nehemiah right now, right? So it is kind of appropriate. When it comes to money, this is the example I wanted to give you. When it comes to money, we as a people feel awkward. We feel awkward. We don't know if we should be scorning it, or embracing it, or chasing after it. And currently, there's a couple pretty pervasive theologies floating around, right? They're not new, trust me in that. They're about as cutting edge as the 2nd century AD, but they... 
they are very formidable, they're sneaky, and a lot of you have been influenced by one or the other or even both without even knowing it, right? I wanted to talk about that a little bit. I wanted to talk about prosperity theology and I wanted to talk about poverty theology. Some of you have never heard this, these terms before, but you've probably have felt a little bit of what they describe. Prosperity theology is a theology that believes that God blesses your good behavior and your accumulation of faith and he'll do that by giving you money and he'll do that by giving you prosperity therefore poverty is truly unnecessary right in fact if you are impoverished it's a sign that you don't have enough faith or maybe you have broken enough of God's rules or you've not been a good enough son right if you collect just enough faith and if you follow a certain codified set of behaviors then God will give you funds or he'll not take away from you. He'll do something to enlarge you, give you wealth and position. So the goal in this theology, the goal in prosperity theology, is to have wealth and to have position and title be a sign and a measure of your righteousness. Those people that have a lot of it, they must have a lot of faith. The people that are poor probably don't have as much faith or obedience, right? One of those two. Now, I had this around me a lot growing up. Not to a really deep level, but I've been around it quite a bit, okay? And I did go on and I, I just, I found an article here recently about one of the main proponents of this theology, and I'm not going to tell you his name, but he was interviewed by a journalist who didn't know anything about it. So she was asking some pretty point-blank questions, like, what's it about, basically, you know? And this pastor, by the way, he has a toilet cover that is worth $27,000 in his house, Right? Just to cast this. This is where he's at. So if there's a sword, he's the tip of it when it comes to prosperity theology. That's like a nice Acura. And it's covering his toilet. And I don't even know what that means, you know. But it's this nice marble cover. He says this, listen, Abraham was rich. Moses was rich. And they were rich because they had faith and because they were men that were righteous. And so God made them wealthy. This is what he said. He also said, hey, and Jesus must have had some means. Because when he was hanging on the cross, they were gambling for his clothes at his feet. These are things that they said, right? That there is wealth and power to be unlocked. And the key to unlock it is your obedience and faith. That's the key. Hey, if you're impoverished, it's not necessary. Let me tell you where this came from real quickly before I move on. This comes from capitalism seeping into the gospel, which is nothing new under the sun. Ever since the gospel was brand new in a baby church, the church is one day old, something is trying to mingle in and dilute the gospel, right? The Jews did it really fast with laws and works. They wanted all the Gentiles to be circumcised. They're starting to apply laws that didn't belong there, right? We saw that a little bit later. Gnosticism started picking up and started to dilute the gospel. Something's always trying to get in and stick itself to the gospel. This is just a case of capitalism doing it. That's all this is. It's not new. It's not new at all. Now, I would like to contend, and I would like to submit, that we are blessed by performance, but it's not our performance, right? We're blessed because of a performance that was done for us. It was Jesus' performance, which warrants all blessing in our life, right? That's biblical. It is. I mean, Ephesians says this. Hey, do you have that, by the way? Ephesians 2, 8, 9? Okay. Put this up there. Some of you have heard this a million times. For by grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So listen, even the faith you have is a gift given to you. 
You don't get blessed because you get enough faith or you get your faith big enough. The faith you have has been given to you by God himself. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 that faith is even a gift. Some have a deeper measure of faith than others. But why? Because they're smarter or because they have money? No, because God decided this person and my benevolence and my big knowing, this person is just going to have a gift of faith. That's how it works. So the measure of righteousness is not our wealth. It's not our place. It's Jesus' wealth and it's Jesus' place. It's very simple. Jesus is our righteousness. He is the measure of our righteousness. That's my contention with this. That's my contention with this theology. Okay? Yes, Abraham and Moses, they were wealthy because God decided they were going to be wealthy. I mean, they were righteous because God decided they were going to be righteous. That's how it works out. Jesus might have had some clothes worth gambling, but let's not forget he was homeless and poor. I'm just saying. He was homeless. Now, you have a new... Seems new. It seems like the new kid on the block. It's not, again. But poverty theology is starting to have a resurgence. We're seeing a little bit of it, which is difficult on pastors today. Money, and this is the view that money is evil, and righteousness doesn't come by having money, but righteousness comes by not having it. By pushing it away. This theology, it declares war on the rich, and it declares war on the wealthy. And so in their attempt to not make money an idol, they refuse employing it, or enjoying it rather, or both, to the glory of God. They just won't do it. You know, but we can enjoy wealth coming like we can enjoy any other gift given to us, and that is with no guilt. And we can employ wealth and prosperity like we would employ any gift given to us by God, right? And that is for His glory. Where this is becoming more and more difficult, I'm finding, with pastors is whenever a person like me meets with someone who's impoverished or poor or college student or middle class, it's called pastoring. But if I were to meet with someone that was wealthy, it's called partial, right? And so now pastors are even getting scared of working with those who are wealthy because it looks impartial. It looks like we're being biased. And then you've got a large class of people raising up that are very wealthy and Christian, but they just, they're struggling because they don't get pastored as well. Right? That's just something we're seeing. That's for free. But there is a, a parable I want to read you. I read this the other day. It's very, very appropriate. Um, it's a modern day parable. Um, and it's written by Mark Driscoll. But it's called a poverty theology parable. Um, and so the number one rule in public speaking is you never read to people. People don't like being read to. But I'm going to do the best I can to maintain good eye contact with you. Okay? So you won't feel like I'm reading to you. And it starts off this way. Because this really drives it home, and it should illustrate it a lot better than I'm able to. A loving and generous father once bought his son a shining new bicycle. And with a broad smile, the father surprised the son and rolled it out and handed it to him. The father asked the child what was wrong, because strangely, rather than looking happy, the son looked anxious. Rather than riding the bike, he stepped away from it in fear. The son said, Father, I cannot ride the bike. All around the world, there are missionaries who do not have a bike. I would like to give my bike to them so that they can ride around to unreached people groups and preach the gospel. The father replied, If you just simply ask me, I'll also give you a second bike that you can give to the missionary. Yet rather than simply riding the bike, the son continued to argue with his father, saying, I would much rather prefer an older bicycle. This one is shiny. And it's new, and it makes me look proud if I ride it. The father explained, I want you to ride the bike I gave you. 
and you are more concerned about what others think of you as you write it than my joy in seeing you enjoy my gift to you. Then you may look humble to them. I know, deep inside, that there's pride in your heart because you're living for their approval rather than mine. Unrelenting. The son said, But some people will talk about my bike out of judgment or envy or jealousy because it is so nice. He must have put cards in the back tire or something, you know, to make them look. Some might even stumble and covet my bicycle. I don't want them to sin, and so I would rather not have a new bike so as to be considerate of them. The father replied, If others respond to my grace to you in this way, the problem is not the bicycle, but their hearts. Right? I will deal with their hearts should they prove sinful. Something you assume will happen, but you don't even know. I will love and serve them by working to change their heart if they respond sinfully. But for you, my request is that you simply ride the bike I gave you. You're thinking about it too much, and you're enjoying it too little. The father walked away for a few hours, kindly asking the son to reconsider his request. Upon returning, the son had yet another line of reasoning. Father, I will not ride the bike because I am fearful. I fear that it is so nice and I would enjoy it so much that it would become an idol to me. So, to avoid idolatry, I will abstain from riding the bicycle. The father replied, You could also ride your bike as an act of worship to me. Enjoying the gift I gave you to your joy and to my glory. Once again, the problem is not the bike. The son replied, But father, you are better than any bicycle. You are enough. I do not need a bicycle. I have you. You, father, are enough. Grieved in his heart, the father said, I know I am enough, but I am a generous father. And I like to give good gifts to my children. I like to see them blessed, happy, free. I just wanted to watch you ride the bike. I wanted to go for a ride with you. Then we could have had fun and spent time together and make memories and laugh. Tragically, the son never did ride the bike. Instead, he gave it away. It didn't cause anyone to stumble. And he didn't treat his bike as an idol. And he did not obey God, the Father, and worship Him by simply being a kid and enjoying the gift His Father gave Him because He was too busy being a theologian with a head full of fears rather than a heart full of fun. Do you see what's going on there? Do you see how that drives it home? There is a third option, okay, that I'd like to enter. And it's just one of benevolence. One of benevolence, right? And it's where we're not declaring war on wealth, and we're not hoarding it, you know, as a claim of our righteousness before God. But we're taking what is rightfully given to us, what we earn by the skill that God has given us, and we're employing it for the sake of the city and to the glory of God. It's just benevolence. It's philanthropy. You can say it that way even. You know, some people just have a gift to make money. Does anyone know someone like that? Some pe- I know a few people like that. They're just gifted. If they're a salesman, it doesn't matter what they're selling. They're going to sell it well, right? If they're an entrepreneur, they think of something before anyone else does, and they just know how to market it, you know? They just are good at making money. A lot of times they end up feeling like a sinner just because of that. Nothing is intrinsically wrong with wealth and prosperity. Nothing. Just the abuse of it. Just the abuse of it. We don't see Nehemiah riding back to Artaxerxes going, Hey, hey, I need more money. I need more money. Send the next paycheck. I mean, hey, I'm a governor. He doesn't do that. Nor does he say, Hey, Artaxerxes, I don't need any of your money. 
I don't need any of it. We're just going to go on and build the wall. What does he do? He takes what is rightfully his. He takes the money that was due him and he employs it to the kingdom of God. He does it by glorifying God, having a lot of people hospitably in his own house, feeding them to the tune of almost $10 million. That's the dream right there. He's, I mean, that's, that's, that's what we're talking about. This is our calling right here. This is it. Taking, I mean, some of you guys have jobs where it's a very important job. Some of you have jobs where you feel like you're holed up. Some of you have jobs where you get paid a lot. Some of you have jobs where there's a lot of upward mobility. Some of you, listen, all he's saying, all the Bible is talking to us about, not, not to be worried about prosperity theology or poverty theology. Should I scorn it? Should I love it? Could I be too in love with it? Should I feel guilty right now? That awkwardness, just do what God has called you to do with the gifts He's anointed you to do it with. Take what is rightfully yours and employ it to the glory of God and for the sake of the city. That's all. That's what Nehemiah is teaching us. That's what Christ is teaching us. You know? When I read this story, and this is where I see Christ in it. When I read this story, I want to be Nehemiah. But we all know that we're not Nehemiah in this story, Right? I mean, if you read this story, whenever you read stories like this, especially parables, parables are the best. When you read a parable or a story like this, find yourself in the story. If you did, and Nehemiah was your answer, you're wrong. You're not Nehemiah, right? I find myself to look a little bit like one of the old governors. You know? Why? Because I like what I like when I like it. And I don't care who it costs. be totally honest with you. I want to spend what I want to spend when I want to spend it. I want to drink a beer with whoever I want to drink. I want to use my money the way I want to use it. I want to hang out with who I want. When I don't want to be around people, I don't want to. I've got all these demands, all these versions of mango soup in my life that I just have to have. And I'm going to throw a fit if I don't get it. Even if it costs God his own glory and his mission. Even if it does that. I'm an old governor. Right? But the problem with this... The problem with just seeing me in this role, you just seeing yourself in this role, is it's not far enough. That's not actually true reality. You might be a little bit like a governor, but it's not the total truth. The real truth is you're one of the 150 sitting at the table. That is you. That is you. Broken, dislodged from community, needy. You know, before God, we are very spiritually bankrupt. We have no right to be sitting at the table that we're sitting at as Christians, as sons of the King. He invites us, though. He invites us. Stinky. He invites us. Destitute. He invites us. Lonely. Mad. Overworked. Underappreciated. He invites us to the table and He calls us friends. God is hospitable to us at His table. That is what this story is about. You see... We've been adopted into a family, and we cannot lose our place at this table. It's ours forever. See, Nehemiah, he doesn't invite us to look and see what he did. He invites us to come and look and see what God has done. That's where the story is going. In this story, you are one of the 150. You're a beneficiary of Jesus, who is the better Nehemiah. A noble king, a noble governor above all governors, right? He took his due allowance. He took his due freedom. He took his due rights. And he cashed him in and he traded him in for his church at his own cost. That is who we're supposed to image. And that's what we're supposed to look like, right? So Luke, why all the gospel rehash? Why is it important to find ourselves in the gospel in this passage, right? Why is it? 
Because you're never going to be benevolent with your freedoms until you've received and understand how benevolent Jesus was with his life. You're never going to be sacrificial with your giving of time, money, skills, gifts. You're never going to be sacrificial with those things until you understand and feel and grasp how sacrificial Christ was for you. You're never going to be hospitable with people like you should be until you see how Christ was hospitable for you. Do you see how that works? Do you see how it works? That we are cruddy givers because we're cruddy recipients. We're not good at receiving the gospel and what it really means for us. We're not very good as people at looking at how sinful we are. Not that we just do sins a lot. That's not the, that's not the whole story. It's not that we just do a lot of sins. It's that we are sinful. We are sinful. We're marred. Even in your best work, even in that cool thing that you did, it was really noble, it was so mixed with sin that even that is enough to condemn you to hell. Think about that for a minute. Let that sober you for a minute. It does me. I've done some pretty, in my opinion, some pretty cool things, right? Bless some people, you know what I'm saying? And even the pride that comes up in me is enough to condemn me. We are totally sinful. Yet when you flip the coin and look at God, He's majestic. He's huge. He's holy. He's set apart. He's pure. He's totally without sin. And what He did was so scandalous in His attempt to connect us to Him by giving us a seat at a table we have no business being at. That whenever you get your heart around that and you understand how good the gospel really is and how strong it really is, being hospitable... In giving, yielding your rights just is not as tough. It makes more sense and it's not done born of guilt. It's a gratitude and a thanksgiving and a sense of God's mission. That's what's the motor. That's what's powering it. You know, notice Nehemiah's followers, they look a whole lot like him. We've already mentioned that just a minute ago, right? And we are called to image our king as well. As servants. We're called to do the same thing. We're called to vacate our rights and our dues in order to build a city within a city for the sake of the city to the glory of God. You know, listen. I mentioned this earlier and that's the only reason I'm going to go back to it. As a church, we need, as a church, we need sacrificial, benevolent givers. And that's time And yes, that's money. And yes, that's gifting. We need all of it, right? I mean, I'm about to hop on a plane in six days and go back to Texas to raise more money, right? To make this thing work. Because I want want to see this church grow. I'm about to do that with men that are blessed to make money, you know? We need, all this to say, we need finances. But not out of a sense of obligation. Not out of a sense of guilt. Not out of a sense, that's what we came to declare war on. This whole thing of obeying Jesus just for the sake of getting blessed by Jesus or hoping that if we just obey Jesus enough, He doesn't take stuff away from us? That's what we came to put out. You know, people have lived and died in Knoxville since it became a city. Since it was a brand new city, people have come and gone and they've written checks in churches every Sunday for billions of dollars, I'm sure. Right? All of it under the banner of guilt. A lot of it. Let's just say this. A lot of it. Under a banner of guilt, pride, poverty, prosperity, gain. We want to see you. I want to see you. Let me say that I believe God wants to see you give sacrificially of your time, treasures, talents, not because you feel guilty. Not because you think it's going to impress God. 
but because you are so thankful because of the sense of gratitude that is in your heart for this incredible thing called the gospel that he has done for you. That that would be the, like as Ken Wu says, the impelling motive. The thing that when Christ's love controls me and compels me, that that's what that looks like. It's a better gospel understanding. So, I'm going to finish with this. In fact, the team can go ahead and come back up if you want. What are you doing? This is quick application. What are you doing with your freedoms? What are you doing with your freedoms? What are you doing with your rights, your dues, your allowances, your lands, your time, your money? What are you doing with those things that are rightfully yours? Let me make a better question. Why are you doing that with it? Is it out of a sense of guilt, poverty, prosperity? Is that why you're doing it? Or is it benevolence? I mean, which servant do you look like? Do you look like the servant of the governors that have come before our governor, our true governor? Or does your impelling motive look and smell a little bit more like Jesus Christ? Listen, gospel understandings, they require you to pray and ask God to help you see it. That's the thing. You can't just crack open a book. I don't even care. If Tim Keller wrote the book, that's fantastic. Your favorite author, he writes the book. You can't just crack it open and read it and go, oh, I get the gospel now. Oh, I get it. It makes so much sense now. That's not because you read some lines and you understand. The Holy Spirit comes in and He cracks something in you and pulls it back so that you can understand even what the gospel means. Other than that, we wouldn't even understand what the gospel means. Right? So as I'm talking to you, if you're like, well, Luke, it makes sense. And I can see that through Nehemiah and I can see the cross and the better table and all that. But gosh, it still does feel like guilt. I mean, when I have people over for dinner and I'm hospitable, I don't want to do it. And I don't really care. You know, when I write a check, when I show up, when I play the guitar, whatever you do, whenever I do it, Luke, I just, I don't see the gospel really in it. You need to ask God to show you why it is so awkward for you to be one who vacates their life for the cost of others, for the sake of the city and for the glory of God. You need to ask yourself, why is this so awkward, God? Help me. Start to unpack the whys. Get to the true motivation of what's there. Some of you really need to do some work with God, even as we worship today. Now, some of you are lost. Go ahead and stand up with me. And when I say lost, I mean you have no relationship with God, and you are self-aware enough to know that. You know that. You don't know a lot of things, but you know that I'm not a friend of God, and I'm not seated at His table. Some of you aren't sure if you are or not. Some of you are in this weird place where you're just not quite sure if you are or not. Let me just tell you how this works real fast in the beginning God dined with man with the race of man in the garden and it was perfect and it was beautiful and it was peaceful and we ate together then sin came death followed and our relationship was separate right table one that was the first table then another table came and that's when God came to earth looking like us sounding like us, but not acting like us. And he dined again with us. This was the Last Supper, prophesying over what was going to happen to his body as it was broken, and what was going to happen to his blood as he let it out for us. That's table two. Table three is when Christ comes back on a cool white horse and rescues us all and takes us with him where there's a banqueting table, right? Where we get to celebrate with him. A new communion. That's table three, right? You see, when we take communion, we're about to worship God, 
through song. And when we do, we have the elements over here, the bread and the wine, but just let me remind you, yes, it stands for the first table, and yes, it stands for the second, but it also stands for the third too. It is Jesus' broken body and His spilt blood, but it is a reminder to us that there is a banquet coming. There is a banquet coming for us as well. There is a hope set before us. Whenever we take communion, we are eating with Jesus. It is a visual gospel for us of what was done for us. So like Nehemiah, Jesus is inviting you, who are very undeserving, to eat with Him. That He could call you friend. That He could call you family. That you could turn from the old governors. And that you can basically turn from your own rights, your own selfishness, And you can call him king. You'd be in a place where you'd never lose. So let me pray for you. And, you know, as we start this, as we we start worship, just so you know, there'll be a few of us at the back. I mean, I know Wes will be back there, and I know Jeremy will be back there. I'll be back there for some of it. If you need to talk to somebody about, hey, Luke, I'm not sure. I think I'm a Christian, but I'm not really sure because I did something when I was seven and people told me, but I don't really feel anything going on. If you need to have that conversation, we love to have that conversation. If you know that you're not, we love to have that conversation. If you just need someone to talk to, you're just jacked up, something inside of you is upside down and you need help figuring it out, we'd love to talk to you. We'd love to pray. We'd love to carry you and just show you where Christ is, where the cross is, and help you work some of those knots out, okay? So let me pray for you.